Mark chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Again he began to teach by the sea, speaking of Jesus, and a great multitude was gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. A little ringing. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen. Jesus starts out by emphasizing, listen to what he's about to say. Yogi Berra famously said, you can observe a lot just by watching. (laughs) And you can hear a lot just by listening. And the cry of the prophets was often listen. You know, as we've been going through Isaiah on Thursday nights, it's, you know, Isaiah's. Uh, the Lord speaking through him saying, listen, you know, he calls the coastlands and the islands to bear witness, you know, to the and the earth, bear witness to the words that are being said. So Jesus starts out this parable by telling them, listen. He says, behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he starts off this parable saying, Listen. He ends it by saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's important to listen to what the Lord has to say. We see the crowds following Jesus are so large that he once again utilizes a boat to get some distance between himself and the people, lest they crush him. I don't think Jesus was probably in danger of being crushed given who he is. So it's probably he had more concern for their safety than for his own. Um, But he kept this distance between them. Jesus begins to teach the people in parables. And we wonder what is a parable. There are several definitions that can help us. Uh, Parable is a comparison of one thing with another, a likeness, a similitude, uh, like Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like this or that. A lot of different uh, figures of speech can be used in parables, metaphors and similes. A parable is an example by which a doctrine or precept is illustrated. A parable is a narrative. It's fictitious, but agreeable to the laws and usages of human life by which either the duties of men or the things of God particularly the nature and history of God's kingdom, are figuratively portrayed. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. There was a story told about a girl in Sunday school, a small girl, and her te- their teacher was telling this, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, and so the next week they're there, and she's, does anybody remember what we talked about last week? What's a parable? And the little girl raises her hand and says, it's a heavenly story with no earthly meaning. <laughs> it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And a proverb can be a parable, you know, very short. Well, the Greek word for parable is from para, alongside of, 
Uh, we know the Greek word parakletus, or paraclete, which is the Holy Spirit brought alongside another comforter. And then the last part of the word is balo, or to, which means to put, place, or throw. So you're putting one thing alongside another in a parable. Parable is a brief story that is true to life, given for the purpose of teaching some spiritual truth. Now, parable can be rather obscure or puzzling, while at the same time illustrating an important truth. Jesus has been encountering fierce opposition to his actions and teaching, even to the point of some trying to kill him. So he's coming at them. He's coming at the people in a different way, less direct sort of sideways, sneaking up on him with what he's teaching rather than saying it directly. A parable comes at a person circumspectly and it may be able to bypass their defenses without being directly confronted by their resistance to the truth. Jesus still teaches directly at times depending on the specific circumstances or audience. And we'll see that going forward in Mark. But a parable can cause someone to think anew and to move them to a heart's condition in which they will be more open to the direct teachings of Jesus. Henry G. Campbell Morgan said, uh, Jesus didn't use parables to blind people. We'll see he talks about their blindness. But because they were blind. Therefore, Jesus used the parabolic method not in order to blind them, but in order to make them look again. Not in order to prevent them from coming to forgiveness, but in order to lure them toward a new attention. In a similar way, this indirect approach may allow you to have a conversation with someone who would otherwise be triggered if you said the same thing in a direct way. Triggered is a new verb in our day. Sounds rather violent. Trigger used to be Roy Rogers' horse. That's what I remember or part of a gun, but now it's a reaction to something said. You say the wrong thing or in the wrong way, and you can trigger someone's angst or animosity or violent reaction. But what you always trigger is the flesh, the fallen nature of man. You're deemed worthy of no less than death because you are so unwoke. But the woke are just like the blind and deaf of Jesus' statements. Of course, at some point, the truth must be addressed in a direct way. No one is saved by parables. Parables can have a number of purposes as opposed to direct statements. Uh, Dr. Herbert Lockyer, you know, he wrote all the books of the Bible. Well, sort of. He wrote all the parables of the Bible, all the men of the Bible. He wrote all the all books of the Bible. (laughs) He wrote a book on parables. And Lockyer gives these number of purposes uh, of a parable to reveal truth in an interesting form and create more interest. He concentrates on Matthew 13, which is the other place where this parable is, is taught, one other place. So to reveal truth in an interesting form, create more interest. He tells them to you, it's been given and blessed are your eyes and ears. So perking their interest up. Parables can be used to make known new truths to interested hearers. I wouldn't say it in the way of new truths, but eternal truths presented in a different form. They can be used to make known mysteries by comparison with things already known. As we mentioned, the kingdom of heaven is like. 
It can be used, the parable can be used to conceal truth from disinterested hearers and rebels at heart. He tells his apostles later, it's not given to them to know the mystery of the kingdom. He'll tell us why. It's not an arbitrary choice. He doesn't just cause someone to be this way just because he decides to do that. It has to do with them as well. And then a parable can be used to add truth to those who love it and want more of it. He'll tell us to him who has, more will be given. And then also to take away from those who hate it and do not want it. To him who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And then the final reason for parables is that they, it's to fulfill prophecy. The Messiah, when he was to come, it's you know, Psalm 78.2, he says, I will open my mouth in parables. So some of these reasons may sound contradictory. For example, to create more interest and then to conceal the truth from rebels. There's more than one thing going on in the giving of a parable. Similar to the parable of the sower and the soils. Depending on what the state of the heart is in the person listening, hearing, or not listening or hearing, this parable will impact different people in different ways. The explicit reason Jesus gives for these parables in the Gospels is that they are not, that it is not given to those who are outside to know the mysteries of the kingdom. We'll talk in detail as to why this is the case, but this is in reference to those who will not hear. This is not his purpose for his disciples. His purpose for them is to give them understanding. And he will explain parables to them. We find an Old Testament example of the use of a parable in the confrontation of David by Nathan, the prophet. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, who became pregnant, and then he attempted to cover up his sin by having Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, murdered by war. David tried some cover-ups earlier, lesser cover-ups, let's say, but those didn't work out. And so he came to this. When 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 7, says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. This is, it's been probably a year since the incident. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished and it grew up together with him and with his children. So it's like a pet lamb. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup. I don't know if I'd want to share my cup with a lamb. And it lay in his bosom and it was like a daughter to him. This is how dear this little lamb was. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock from his own herd to prepare one for the wafering man who had come to him. And he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. What do you think, David? David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So, I'm sure he would have to do the fourfold before he died. These are the kind of penalties that David said, well, that guy, he's he's worthy of this. And this is what's going to happen. And then Nathan says to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, 
and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. A couple more verses. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been too little, I would also have given you much more. The love that God had for David. He said, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. David responds in repentance because his guilt has been convincingly revealed by Nathan's parable. He's judged himself guilty and deserving of death. But God is gracious toward David. Now, if David had been confronted directly with his sin, the response may have been very different. Someone has described the miracles of Jesus, of which we've seen a few so far in Mark, as parables in works. In other words, the miracles are to teach us more than simply the works of power and what's going on. We saw someone cleansed from leprosy. We see the loathsomeness of sin in someone being afflicted with leprosy and that God can take away that loathsomeness of sin. Uh, We saw healing of a paralytic where we saw the forgiving of sins and healing. And, And there's the authority here to forgive sin but it also shows the helplessness of sin. A man with a withered hand. You know, we saw the compassion and Jesus' authority over God's uh, commands, even the Sabbath. But the man with the withered hand, we find the uselessness of sin. And as you go through and look at different miracles, you can probably see some spiritual uh, aspects and meanings there. So some have described these miracles of Jesus as parables in works, and they've described parables as miracles in words. The miracles are to teach us more than the working of power. The parables are to teach us more than stories. There's a spiritual reality, meaning behind those parables. So this, to this multitude in chapter 4 of Mark, Jesus speaks in parables and he will tell us a major reason why coming up. Mark only gives us a few of the parables of Jesus in comparison to Matthew and Luke. But he does say that Jesus taught them many things in parables. He only gives us a few. Jesus' first parable given to us is this one in chapter 4, the parable of the sower of seed. It has a meaning that relates to the sowing of the word of God in the human heart. The sower sowing the seed, which falls on different kinds of soil, is put alongside the preaching or teaching of the spiritual seed, the word of God, which enters the soil of human hearts. This may lead us to ask, what kind of soil am I? Will I always be the kind of soil I am? What kind of soil ought I to be? If I recognize myself to be a negative type of soil, is there anything I can do to change to become good soil? Am I stuck forever being bad soil? Can I get some spiritual fertilizer? Do I have any control over my soily state? You know, any way you look at it, you're just dirt. (laughs) We were made from dust, we'll go back to dust. But who you are or who you become depends on what kind of crop you bear. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, and if you recognize yourself as not being 30, 60, or 100-fold soil, that's a good sign. It's a sign of spiritual awareness. And it does allow you to take steps in a positive direction. 
If you recognize your need, this is a good sign, unlike the ones to whom Jesus applies the prophecy of Isaiah, as he will. They have no spiritual awareness or receptivity. They are blind and they are deaf. Blind to the works of God and deaf to the word of God. In Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, after Jesus presents this parable, it says, When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Jesus gives us a major reason for his use of parables with the multitude, and it has to do with their opposition to the truth that he's been sharing. Notice first that there are other disciples besides the twelve who have been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. He speaks here of uh, those around him with the twelve had asked him, and so this is who he explains to. These are blessed with seeing eyes and hearing ears. They are open to the truth of God. They have eyes and ears. Let him who has ears hear. In Matthew 13, 16, and 17, the context of this same parable there, he says, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see. They were looking for the days of the Messiah. And they did not see it. And to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. Oh, to hear the words from the Messiah's mouth. But for others, he's speaking indirectly in stories and illustrations so that they may not perceive the truth that is being conveyed. Why is Jesus treating them this way? They do not have eyes to see or ears to hear, and thus they are hostile to the truth of God. It's not just that they don't understand. They don't want to understand. They want to twist and find fault with the words that are being spoken. So they do not perceive what they see or understand what they hear. Who is responsible for this state of their eyes and ears, which is really the state of their hearts? Notice that these are described as being on the outside. They're outside of what? Outside of those who have ears to hear or hearts receptive to the truth that Jesus is sharing. There's at least one insider or one outsider who's given the explanation of the parable. He's with the other 11 apostles. His name is Judas. He's there when the parable is explained, right? He gets the inside information. But Judas does not have ears to hear. He hears the explanation of the parables, but he does not get it. He doesn't receive the spiritual truths and apply them to his own heart. We know this because of his ultimate end. The teachings of Jesus are not accepted with faith by Judas. And there are many today that are in that same state. How did these people come to be in a state in which Jesus speaks to them only in parables, at least for the most part? Jesus simply tells us of their condition here in Mark in this verse, but he does not explain how they came to be this way. Many believe that God simply determined that they will be this way and that it's beyond their control. And they wonder, why would God do this? This is a stumbling block for many people. But there is a process that we do see in Scripture. This in itself is not a mystery. And Jesus here is quoting from Isaiah chapter 6. 
when he says, you know, give them ears that don't hear, eyes that don't perceive. In Isaiah 6 and verse 8, this is the, where the Lord, or Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train was filling the temple. And saw that heavenly scene and he was there. And in verse 8, he says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. This is his commission to Isaiah at this point. We've We've been in Isaiah on Thursday. We've talked about this you know, several times. Not an encouraging uh, ordination to ministry. You know, he says, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. So this is Isaiah being sent to these people and, and God's basically telling him what the outcome is going to be. He's going to be given words from the Lord to share with them. And that very process is going to cause them because they are uh, they don't have ears to hear already, they don't have eyes to see, it's going to cause them to become opposed to Isaiah. So the very fact that he's going to be giving them more of God's truth, more of God's word, is going to cause their heart to become dull. Not because of the word, but because of the state of their heart. And look what it says in verse 11. Then I said, Lord, how long? How long are you going to have me doing this? You know, this doesn't sound like, you know, real encouraging kind of thing. And he answered until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. See, the judgment of God was coming upon Israel because of their rejection of him, rejection of his word. And, and we'll see, there is a remnant. He's going to talk about this. Not everybody was in this condition or this state. And verse 12, until the Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak. He says, whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. There's going to be some remainder there that really are open to the Lord. And we'll see it in other, other words uh, in other places. So Isaiah is speaking to his own generation. And, and those following, and he's also prophesying of the future Israelites who will live in the time of Jesus and beyond. God declares them to be a stiff-necked people. He's not the one who has stiffened their necks, not directly. They are a people who are walking in unbelief. We know also there's a remnant who is not stiff-necked. These people have received the word of God by the scriptures and through the prophets, but they have not responded in faith to his word. There's a tendency, this is a tendency of mankind in their fallen state, and there's a warning to be heeded. If a person continually rejects God's word, not trusting and obeying in faith, but denying the truth of God by their life course, they're in danger of a hardening or callousing of their heart. A dullness of their ears... Spiritually speaking, hearing aids will not help. And a blindness of their eyes, like spiritual cataracts, 
keeping them from being able to see and perceive. Such a person may continue in the community of faith, even as these ones in Jesus' day were attentive to spiritual things, but they react in a negative way to the truth. Paul described them similarly in 2 Timothy 3, 5, where he's talking about in the last days perilous times will come, and he concludes with, these people have a form of godliness, but deny its power. From such people turn away. I mean, they were, they were religious. They were saying that they were following the God of Israel. Well, indicating the importance of this prophecy in Isaiah, it's quoted six times in the New Testament in different places, in different ways. It's an important warning for us. Danger, Will Robinson, even if your name's not Will Robinson. Three of the quotes are this one here in Mark and in the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke, but it's also quoted in John. Um, We went through the book of John. This last time we spoke of this would have been 2018, so we're sort of revisiting this concept. But in John chapter 12, in verse 37... John writes and says, Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's you know, Isaiah 53. And then it says in verse 39, Therefore they could not believe. Because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So he's talking about there in Isaiah chapter 6, and he's saying he saw the glory of Jesus. When he talked about the Lord high and lifted up on the throne, his train fills the temple, he's... He's saying, John's saying he saw Jesus. And he quotes from both sections of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, Isaiah 6. And he says, this is Isaiah that said these things. So, there's an order here. It says, uh, he'd, done so, he'd done so many signs before them. They did not believe in him. Therefore, they could not believe. They had come to that point. When they did not believe, they've come to that point where they... No longer could. This is the order. Someone does not believe in him, and if they continue to do so, eventually they cannot believe in him. Their eyes are blinded. Their hearts are hardened. It's a process that happens when someone continues to reject the truth of God. It is not a decree of God that is inevitable or unavoidable. It is when a person's heart is totally hardened that they cannot turn and cannot be forgiven. They do not want to be It's not that God won't allow them to. They do not see any need for God's forgiveness. They feel no conviction or guilt. And they may very well be quite religious. You know, I know this isn't a feel-good topic. But it's an important topic. I don't know of anyone here that would be in danger of having a hardened or calloused heart and not being able to hear the Lord. But you may encounter some people and know some people. The other places where this uh, passage is quoted, one is in Acts chapter 28, 
verses 24 through 28, Paul is living in his house in Rome under arrest. And the Jews come to him so he can share with them. Verse 24 says, Some were persuaded by the things that which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. Seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. So the Lord uh, telling them here through Paul, the people in the New Testament days, the Jews who would not receive Jesus as Messiah, that this prophecy of Isaiah is applying to them. And you notice there's a little different emphasis here. Now, this is the way it's presented also in Matthew, which gives us some of the indication of the personal responsibility. You know, if you read uh, some passages, it might give you the impression that, well, God just decided to do this. He chose certain people and made them this way, you know. But that's not the case. He says uh, in verse 27, the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes, they have closed. It starts with this and becomes a progression. And eventually, if a person comes to that point, then God will close their eyes, close their ears. So this quotation, the way Paul presents it, indicates the responsibility of the person and the dulling of their heart. And both aspects are true, but it starts with the person. It ends with a judgment upon the person. So that a person has the responsibility and the dulling of their heart, the deafening of their ears, the blinding of their eyes. Their eyes they have closed. You know, thinking of the parable of the sower and the seed... Well, see, the seed is the Word of God, and it's supposed to go into the soil of the heart and produce this crop of fruit unto the Lord, 30, 60, 100 fold. In Jeremiah chapter 4, he's speaking of the state of the hearts as well, and he says in verse 3, Jeremiah 4, 3, he says, Thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and do not sow among thorns. Speaking of that same process of sowing. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. So he's talking about heart issues again. You men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. The fallow ground is ground that's not plowed and not planted. And you let it go for some years and, you know, the rain... It's rained on, the sun beats upon it, and it becomes hard. You can throw the seed out there and it won't penetrate. So he says, break up your fallow ground. We, there's a responsibility in this to, to kind of plow your heart, <laughs> make it ready to receive the seed of the Word of God. They needed to plow the idle ground of their hearts. Unplowed ground becomes hard, resistant to the seed, plowing breaking the soil to allow the seed to enter the soil, the watering by the rain, then once the seed is entered, which is, you know, the watering by the Holy Spirit, 
These works of the Word of God received by faith keep the heart soft and tender before the Lord. And He wants us to have those tender, soft hearts. Hosea said much the same thing in Hosea 10.12. He said, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground. Um, Isaiah and Hosea. um, um, Jeremiah was a little bit later. Isaiah and Hosea were the same basic time period. Break up your fallow ground for it's time to seek the Lord till He comes and rains righteousness on you. We see another time when this is... um, This quotation from Isaiah is quoted, and that's in Romans chapter 11, verses 5 through 8. And this is related to uh, Israel, national Israel. It says in verse 5, Even so then, at the present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. All the Jews didn't have hard hearts and hard ears and blind eyes. There was a remnant according to the lecture of grace. Paul was among that remnant. The apostles were among that remnant. And there were many other Jews that were saved. And remember all the priests, many priests came to the Lord. And there were 3,000 and 5,000 on various days. And these were the remnant. But he says it's according to the election of grace. He says, if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. These two are totally opposite. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. See, there's a blinded. And this word is the same word that's translated hardened in other places. So the blinding and the hardening are synonymous. The elect have obtained it, but the rest were blinded. They had their hearts dull. They had grown hard, callous. They've lost the power of understanding. Why is this the case? I think he tells us in the context here, it's because they sought salvation by works and refused the gospel of grace. And so he says in verse 8 then, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And that's a quote from Isaiah 29.10 and also incorporates Isaiah 6.10. Later in Romans 11.25, Paul says this, I don't desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Well, the classic example of the hardening or blinding, deafening process, uh, and it is a process, is found in Pharaoh, king of Egypt during the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 4 and verse 21, the Lord says to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. So he gave him those signs. He said, God says, But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. This is a prophecy of what God will do, but it's not the beginning of a process. Uh, the word for harden here is kazakh, which means to strengthen. Basically, he's going to strengthen Pharaoh in his resolve. But we'll see that Pharaoh, first of all, uh, carries out this process himself. And then it, com- it comes to that point where uh, God finishes the process. So, he's telling Moses right away, this is what I'm going to do. You know, 
he's not, you know, he tells him in our place, he's not going to listen to you. Uh, Exodus 3.19, this is after the burning bush. God says, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. In other words, uh, how did God know? I'm sure he's not going to let you go. God knew Pharaoh. He knew him before these events ever took place. So at the end of the first sign, where Aaron threw his staff down and it became a serpent in Exodus 7, it tells us that Pharaoh's heart grew strong or hard. Uh, some versions will say in that passage, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's no he there. It's just a, it's a passive voice. His heart is growing hard. Because his magician's rods became serpents as well. Do you remember Aaron's rods swallowed up their rods? Well, in Exodus, Exodus chapter 7, verse 22 and 23, the first plague of blood, water to blood, it says uh, after this that the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. So they took some water and turned it into blood, or at least appeared to be blood. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard. This is that natural process taking place. There's no indication of God hardening his heart directly. But because he sees, oh, that, well, why should I believe this God? My magicians are able to do the same thing. And so his heart's beginning to grow hard against that which God is doing. So Pharaoh turned, went into his house, we're told in verse 23, neither was his heart moved by this. There wasn't any reason for him to change his ways. Didn't move him at all. So Pharaoh's heart is growing hard or strong in his course due to his rejection of God's word. In this case, God's word was, let my people go. In Exodus 8.15, the second plague of frogs, uh, in verse 15, it says, When Pharaoh saw that there was relief after the frogs were, had died, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. So, uh, First, his heart's growing hard. He begins to participate in actively hardening his heart against the Word of God. The word here is kabod, which means his heart's becoming heavy. He's making his heart heavy before the Lord. And there, those two different words are used in here, kazak and kabod. And, you know, that I don't make a major distinction between them because I don't think it's that clear cut. It's something that's happening to Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 8.19, the third plague, gnats or lice, uh, the magician said to Pharaoh in verse 19, this is the finger of God. They weren't able to make lice from dust. And so they told Pharaoh, this is beyond what we're able to do. This is God's doing something here. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord said. Exodus 8.32, the flies, the fourth plague, says Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. And then the fifth plague in Exodus 9.7, uh, the livestock are killed. And Pharaoh sent, and indeed not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead, so God was making a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. In these instances, we see Pharaoh's heart becoming hard toward God as a result of his own decisions and resistance to God's commands. 
In Exodus 9.12, the sixth plague, uh, boils, we're told in verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he did not heed them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So judgment is beginning upon Pharaoh directly from God and strengthening his heart, Kazakh, in the direction that he has decided to go. Uh, in Exodus 9, verses 13 through 16, there's a prelude here to the seventh plague of hail. Speaking about Pharaoh's heart, his condition, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. You know, he's, he's given them a lot of time here with all these plagues. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up, he says to Pharaoh, that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. So God is going to be revealing to all the earth who he is through Pharaoh. Because he knows Pharaoh. He's going to be using Pharaoh. Now, we don't want to be mistaken here. God never forced Pharaoh to do anything that he did. He didn't force him to do anything he did not want to do. But God knew Pharaoh, and God knew what Pharaoh would do. Pharaoh hardened his heart against God continually until finally God confirmed his direction, giving him over to his course, hardening his heart in judgment. Is referred to by many as judicial hardening. This is a judgment from God upon a person who is continually rejecting, rejecting, rejecting his truth. There is one more time we're told after this that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and that's in Exodus 9, 34 and 35, the seventh plague. It says, When Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more. And he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So this is not even just Pharaoh, but his servants as well start hardening their hearts. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. This is his condition now. It's hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. And from this point forward, we are told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Five more times we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he would not let Israel go. There are several things going on in this process. There's a passive hardening of the heart each time the Word of God is not received. A person may actively contribute to the hardening of their own heart when they knowingly reject the truth of God. And finally, at a point known only to God, He will confirm them in their position. This is the final step. And it comes when a person has so rejected the truth that they are no longer able to see, hear, or turn from their sin. Many take these instances of hardening out of context or standing alone and they assign to God all the hardening of hearts that ever takes place. To hear them speak, no one would ever be hardened unless God is directly responsible. This is not the case. God seeks to soften people's hearts toward Him and toward His truth. But when men resist the truth of God, they begin moving on this path of hardening. 
But the hardening of the heart is a process, the final step of which is God hardening the heart when the person is beyond hope of answering his call. Sometimes referred to as judicial hardening, a judgment from God as a result of a person's rejection of him, the refusal to come to him at his call, the refusal to heed his word to the point where they no longer have the capacity, nor do they desire to respond positively and turn to God. Yet it is part of a natural process. It is difficult or impossible from our standpoint to discern where a person's own hardening of their heart ends and the Lord's hardening of their heart begins. God does not have to do anything actively, but He does validate or confirm their choice. They've gone beyond the day of salvation. But where there is life, there is hope. Hard hearts have been softened. Fallow ground has been broken up. Hard hearts have been broken as a person returns or turns to the Lord. God is not denying the truth to anyone who wants to know the truth. He is concealing the truth from those who have rejected it. And in the use of parables, coming at them circumspectly, He's giving them an opportunity, more time, lest their hearts become even harder towards the truth. Perhaps they will be softened by the work of the Holy Spirit. He says of those who reject the truth, Matthew thirteen twelve, even what he has will be taken away. Any understanding that they may have had is taken from them. This is a terrible fate and one to be diligently avoided. All of us are lost. And it is our reception of the Word of God that determines whether we are saved or whether we remain lost. It was never that Pharaoh wanted to do the will of God. And God was just being mean and would not let him. You know, Pharaoh saying, oh man, I don't know why Yahweh won't accept me. I really want to bow to him and obey him. No, Pharaoh saw himself as a God. And the Lord as any other false deity. This example of Pharaoh is the natural course and pattern of the hardening of a heart against God. Jesus is saying that many of these people in his day, the people of Israel, had hardened their hearts against God. Many were in danger of closing their eyes and ears. There comes a point where there's a judicial hardening of their hearts also as they continue to reject and oppose his word. We see the pattern in other passages and thus the seriousness of the repeated warning against hardening our hearts against God. We see the same process doctrinally set forth in Romans chapter 1. So we read in verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is that progression. Professing to be wise, they became fools. We're told 
uh, twice that God gives them up or gives them over to vile passions, doing unnatural things that are not fitting. In verse 28, he says, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, so they've rejected Him, God gave them over to a debased mind, reprobate in some translations, to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness. And he gives this long list here at the end of the chapter of the things that qualify as unrighteousness. I'm sure it's not exhaustive. There are always other things you can add. In verse 32, then he says, Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Although the phrase hardening of heart is not used in this passage in Romans 1, this is a description of the same process. This is a judicial hardening as God gives them up to those things of which they refuse to repent. When they have the revelation of the knowledge of God, as all do by His general revelation, and many do by His revelation of Himself in His Word given to man, when they have this knowledge and continually refuse to acknowledge God, as He has revealed Himself, as they continue in rebellion and refuse to repent, at some point, God gives them up to that which they desire. At some point, He confirms them in their desire and their hearts are hardened beyond remedy. Only God knows at what point that is. Some we may consider hopeless may repent. In 1 Corinthians 4-5, we're exhorted to judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. He's the one who is the judge and He'll determine all these things. He'll bring forth... Uh, He will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Proverbs 29.1, we are told, He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. We don't want to be stiff-necked. We don't want to be hard-hearted. Proverbs 28.14, Happy is the man who is always reverent, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Job 9.4, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? I think that it's a pretty low number, maybe zero. (laughs) Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. We have to be concerned about the state of our heart. We see this same hardening process fulfilled in 2 Thessalonians 2. When he's speaking about the mystery of lawlessness, the coming of that Antichrist in verse 7, it says, The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now remains or restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. With all unrighteous deception among those who perish, why do they perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So they've rejected the truth of God. It says, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That is, their hearts are hardened. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So we see the same thing Spoken to us about it, you know, just in different, different words, different way. Why does God harden some people's hearts? 
because they will not receive His Word, His counsel. They will not come to Him that their sins might be forgiven, but insist on continuing in their sin after many times refusing to turn. And so we find the warnings, the quotations of Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, and subsequent warnings to the same effect. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 14, uh, the Hebrews were, uh, the, well, the letter was written to these Hebrews because they were beginning to falter in their commitment to Jesus. And, you know, they were being persecuted for following Jesus. The Jewish religion was not being persecuted at that time. So, hey, why don't we just go back to the temple and the sacrifices and, you know, won't be suffering anymore. Well, in uh, Hebrews 3, verse Starting in verse 7, Paul, the writer of the Hebrews, I think it was Paul, says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Psalm 95, uh, verses 8 and 11, 8 through 11 being quoted there. And so he exhorts them, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. James chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, James writes and says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness, overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So that having that seed of the word planted, implanted in our hearts. And he says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You know, won't be deceived, deceived just by holding it in our mind and not carrying out that which the Lord would have us do. Um, Bob Bennett wrote a song called The Doing of the Thing. And he was talking in relation to the marriage relationship. And he was like, don't mistake the wearing of the ring for the doing of the thing. You know, There's a lot more to marriage than having the ring on your finger. Right? Well, at the end here of... Um, the parable again in Mark chapter 4 and verse 9, he says to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And we'll um, look at Jesus' shared interpretation of the parable when we come back to, to Mark the next time. So those with ears to hear were able to hear. Others had no ears to hear. They were closed to the message of Jesus. And this is the warning for today. Today, if you hear His voice, be open to His message. Listen and respond positively.